do 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 Go out of the podcast with uh, Tate Brown and Tyler Reed. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> he announced it for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I did that. That was a little awkward, that intro music, because he was looking lovingly into my eyes. I know. Those baby blues. <laughs> I, we're going to have, I, I'm going to commit to it right here, right now. Don't do that. Nope, I'm doing it. We are going to have intro music on the next episode. And it may or may not come with a deep voice intro guy, <laughs> which may be one of us with our voices significantly altered. All right. Well, I guess you have a week to get that done now. Yep. It's well, the good news is I have a head start. I got a jump start. So yeah, because you've been working on it for a while. Yeah. Right? I don't know if I would say that, but yeah, it's been there. I've done the kind of the the little footwork to kind of get it going and now I'm just ready to wrap it up. How long is it? Like how long should an intro be? 10 seconds? 15 seconds? I think I don't think that's yeah, 10 at max probably. Mm-hmm. Like on a thing like a 10 podcast. 10 seconds goes quick. 10 yeah, seconds is pretty quick. I know, but it's like on a radio show for example, they might play it for up to like 20, 25 seconds and then you start thinking, yeah. Wait. I was listening to sports radio and now all of a sudden I'm listening to some hip hop. Yeah. Like, is this, did I get the wrong station? And you look and you're like, oh no, they're probably just like taking their last swig of water and clearing their throat, doing their well, how now brown cow. I, I mean, not to put any pressure on you, but the intro music sets the mood for the listener. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, that's a lot of responsibility. Don't, don't you worry. All right. How are you going to describe this podcast? What's the deep voice man going to say? Um, wow. I don't know. That's a great question. I just figured he'd, he'd introduce us and uh, maybe one little thing about the podcast. Yeah, right. Your yeah. world leaders in... We have to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about podcasts is there's no proof. That that's actually there's, true. There's no proof it's, of anything. Why isn't there a company that does a good job of tracking metrics of podcasts? It's so hard because it's so spread out amongst all of the different uh, providers. Well, and I think it's so easy to count um, listens. Yeah, but at the same time, it's not like YouTube where it's like you can see engagement, you can see someone that listened to the end. Well, because it's all on one platform. But a podcast really isn't on one platform right. in the same way. Yeah. Well, I can, I don't even like say on our main podcast page, uh-huh. we don't have that information even there. So that's true what you just said. But on the other hand, we don't even have that on like the native um, podcast host. Yeah. The so, Podbean. Yeah. So from there... You're essentially, I I think what's happening is anytime someone listens, it counts as a listen. And so, uh, yeah. Yeah. We we could look more popular than we really are. Not that we look popular at all. but Look, uh, look popular to who? No one, no st- one looks at it except <laughs> you mostly. I, I still feel like this is Wayne's world. For sure. It is. And once we get into the new lab space and we bring a camera on and we start doing these live, then... I'm excited for that. That's a lot of pressure. It totally we, is. We don't do any post editing, so we've had good practice of kind of like one 
one cut and done. Yeah. But if we go live, <laughs> you just never know what can no, happen. No, I mean, that's great. The fact that we don't do editing and we're not accustomed to editing means we can go live really easily. Yeah. I mm-hmm. hope so. Yeah. I hope so. And we have had people reach out that want to see um, images of yeah. things we've described. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Episode two. I can't provide an image for that, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. but I mean, 3d printing is a very visual topic. So having, having some video accompanying the discussion would benefit many of the discussions that we have. Not to say that it's not worth listening to in the first place. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. You decide. (laughs) So do you have any projects that you've been working on here? Or at home? Printing related? That would be exciting. Yeah. For our listeners. Oh, wow. I've been printing on the J55 lately, you know, doing more full color prints, experimenting with transparencies in SOLIDWORKS. Okay. Um, transparent PNGs, creating transparent gradients and things like that. And uh, just figuring out that workflow. It's not super exciting, but it's interesting, I would say. Color, color's a new thing. I mean, color, there's so many ways to adjust it. Yeah. Within GrabCAD print, within your modeling software and or rendering. Uh-huh. It's It can be complex. It is complex in that you only have certain outputs to work with and you only have certain inputs to work with. And you have to work within uh, the areas where those two align. And that can make it difficult. So for that reason, there are times where I might have to start in Photoshop. I might never have to go into an outside program. I could do it all in CAD. I might have to go to a rendering tool like Keyshot. Uh, We used to have to use Rhino or Blender quite often. So it's evolving and it is becoming more streamlined, but still it can be challenging. You You have to bring in quite a few tools if you want to be able to do any type of color. Yeah. So what have you printed? I was printing some swords, <laughs> some for, blades some... for the stop motion film. Okay. Yeah. I think I saw those. Yeah. There's a small one and I'm a big one. I'm ready for Forged in Fire, I think. Yeah? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I actually watched that show. I've watched like two of the episodes. It's pretty interesting. It is interesting, but I actually think that the timed aspect of it makes it not worth watching. Because it forces everyone to compromise on the quality of what they're capable of doing just to do it in an arbitrary amount of time. And I think that's lame. I don't know what amount of time it realistically takes to forge like a blade. It's not a fast process. Multi-day. So they're all rushing and they're so they're always cracking and warping and they're not able to put out their best work, which if I'm competing, I want to put out my best work. So I would never participate in something like that. Uh, you could get famous. Uh, no, you won't get famous. No one's <laughs> it's getting on famous. Net- it's on Netflix. No one's getting famous on Forge and Fire. Okay, you're right. Actually, someone from my little town was on Forge and Fire. Really? Yeah, and he's not famous. Nobody cares. Nobody really cares. That's too bad. I know. Well, <laughs> let's move on to the news. Okay. So we have a shorter episode today. We kind of know that we're up against the clock a little bit. Yeah. So 
the biggest news probably, um, well, there's, I don't know if we can talk about the one, but uh, we have some other news <laughs> and it is, uh, has to do with Mark Forged. Yeah. So they announced they are going to go public via SPAC. SPAC, yep. Can you tell us anything about that? Do you know much about it? I know you're more um, informed when it comes to investing and, and how these companies go public. Uh-huh. Well, I'm anti-SPAC. Is that what you're asking? So let's talk about it. <laughs> Why? We can talk about it briefly. A SPAC is designed to streamline the process of going public. And it's essentially saying, hey, we know you want to go public. And I, we know that you don't want to go through all the difficult work and you don't want to expose yourself to the scrutiny that you normally would have to. Mm -hmm. So just do this method by merging with an, a company that's already public. And these companies are just holding companies. They're called blank check companies. And all they do is they have assets. So say you and I put together all of our money and then we get a some more people and we put together money and we have $200 million. Okay. We form We'd have a to have some important we people. Do, we form a company <laughs> that has no intellectual property, no business plan, whatever. We just have assets. Mm -hmm. And then a company that's private merges with our company. But we already went through the process of going public in the traditional way. Now, by the through the magic of merging, the real company becomes public. And um, I was told recently that this had already been done back in the 90s and it created a bubble and uh, it didn't end well. I haven't verified that, but certainly I believe it because uh, I just think, you know things are going to go wrong. What the most attractive- what? You, the <laughs> What's going to go wrong? The most attractive thing about the SPAC is that you don't have to go through the due diligence that you normally would. And that's sort of an important part. Like people should know and understand your company thoroughly. So I'm not saying anything specifically about companies that are going through the process. And if it's an option, I understand the allure of going that route, but I just don't think it should be an option. Well, it happened. It's going to happen. So they announced it and it should finalize sometime in the summer. Oh, okay. So, so this is going to take some time. It so will take some time. So the th company th they're merging with... For anyone that cares is one. Yeah. And so that company is public right now. If mm -hmm. you search A-O-N-E, they have a stock. It went up, you know, 20, 25%, something like that on this news. That company exists and you can invest in it today, but it has currently has nothing to do with Mark Forge, not until the summertime. Gotcha. When the actual merger happens. Okay. So they're coming in at about a, a value, expected valuation of $2.1 billion. Uh, to give that number some context, Stratasys market cap right now, uh, yesterday was something like 1.9 billion. 3D Systems market cap, I think, was like 4 billion, something. Desktop metal market cap, you want to guess? I don't. I don't Six even. 6 billion. Oh my gosh. That's wild. It is wild. So I'm not an investor, but um, it just seems like a lot of companies right now are just doing. They're going public, yeah, and they're taking advantage of this these this quote new phenomenon, yeah. <laughs> and so, anyway, that that's pretty big news. If you're interested, uh, there's there's a few articles out there 
um, explaining it in more detail. But just so everybody is aware, Mark Forged will be going public and it sounds like it'll be made official this summer. It sounds like they'll come out of this deal with about 400 million in cash. And it'll be interesting to see where they put that. You know, I would expect it to go into R&D. Perhaps maybe they'll get some more materials. I actually think that Mark Forged will become, they will strive to be more Stratasys-like. That's my prediction. Well, and it's possible now because in other news, uh, the patent, the last patent that Stratasys holds for the heated build chamber is expiring here in like the next... This week. It's a, is it this week? This week, yeah. So that could provide some new opportunities for other companies out there yeah. to innovate and improve their material. I am a believer in competition. I think competition uh, drives innovation. And, uh, you know, organizations and technology stagnates without competition, right? It, go back to whatever episode we were talking about having a nemesis. Oh, Yeah. It's important. Yeah. <laughs> you need to have someone on your tail. And Mark Forge and Stratasys have sort of had that, um, you know, nemesis relationship. Mm-hmm. They both have very different origin stories. And uh, their origin stories, I think, prevent them from being, you know, complete nemesis. Nemesi? Nemesis? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And their product lines for sure. But I would I would actually think Mark Forge will strive to be more Stratasys-like in their offerings, their portfolio, and we'll we'll see what happens. Should be cool. So with that out of the way, I don't think there's any more humongous news. Um, no, I don't think I, so. Since we've started this, I'm kind of I've kind of been surprised. I always thought the news was a little bit slow yeah. with 3D printing, but lately it just seems like every new podcast we have something, some major acquisition to talk about or yeah. a big move of some sort. It's things have been cooking yeah, lately. They have, you know, a lot of consolidation happening. You have companies raising money and, and looking for acquisitions. Uh, you have uh, the, the playing field is active. Yeah, absolutely. So the topic of the day today now that we've moved out of news is topology optimization yeah theory yeah theory not software okay because we were pretty heavy on software last episode and a few episodes and i kind of want to get away from that at least for one episode that's okay with me and this is 3d printing podcast so what relationship does topology optimization have to 3d printing in your mind well i think um well, this is actually pretty big. Topology optimization comes up with these complex shapes, these very organic shapes, which traditionally, if you look at like a CNC component, especially if it's not uh, anywhere eyeballs are going to be laid on it in an, in an assembly, there's not a lot of thought given to how it looks. And it's usually boxy mm-hmm. and comes from, you know, just a plain piece of bar stock and it's not sexy. Uh, it depends on your definition of sexy. Okay. Well, it's, it's very, um, two and a half D if possible. Yeah. Traditionally. And with topology optimization, it creates these shapes that are actually kind of hard and difficult to machine. Um, it can. Yeah. Unless you have multi-axis 
machine. So four plus axis machining, these can be pretty difficult to create, obviously more expensive. Even if they're impo not impossible to create with a CNC machine, they're going to cost more money because there's more machine time involved. So how it relates to additive, in my opinion, is as materials continue to improve, more and more designs you're going to see in everyday life becoming organic, sh organically shaped and optimized in a way that the shape takes the true form of how the component is, is stressed. Whereas right now we have a lot of squares, we have a lot of rectangles, circles, and things like that because that's kind of what bar stock comes in. So as additive improves and we actually use it in major manufacturing applications, mm -hmm. that's, that's how I see it relating. Yeah. So I would say you, you see a lot of prismatic shapes right now because designs are optimized for the method of manufacturing. And the method of manufacturing, at least if it's machined, is going to uh, promote prismatic shapes. They're easier to machine and they're cheaper to machine. Uh, you don't see prismatic shapes as much in casting or injection molding, right? But right. you have your kind of own unique specific types of, sh you know, patterns of shapes. And with additive manufacturing, the shape is less constrained. So you start to see a movement towards uh, designing, optimizing for function instead of manufacturing. So I think that's where, that's the most clear tie-in, right? And you also have a path forward for the designs. So topology optimization and the algorithms that all of the different software tools are kind of built upon date back to the 90s. And these algorithms were developed, um, the, the primary ones were developed around uh, biomimicry. So trying to anticipate how bones would grow, for example, when under load. And those algorithms have been used by industry to design parts. And historically, those parts have been very organically shaped because of the output of nature. More recently, Software programs have made an effort to put additional constraints on the optimization studies to make them manufacturable in different ways. So you can have topology optimization results that are for weldments. You can have top op topology optimization results that are geared towards machining uh, by putting additional constraints. Let's back up. Okay. Let's back up. We do need a backup. Yeah, because... Don't, don't change the dial yet. Okay. Let's explain. Uh, well, would you say generative design and topology optimization could be used synonymously or are there significant differences between the two that make them distinguishably I, different? I try not to use them interchangeably. To me, they mean something different. Okay. And Ex you have... If you've heard these words before... If you've seen a popular mechanics lately uh -huh. magazine cover, or if you follow some tech, uh, anything on Instagram, you have seen a generatively designed component, mm -hmm. you know, within the last few years. Um, 
or uh, something with some topology optimization. So I, I think those words entered the vernacular of many mainstream people this week when Donut Media uploaded a video going over the Porsche pistons. I love those guys. Yeah. Okay, I didn't see this video. They don't know how to pronounce the word topological, though. They don't it's... know how to pronounce a lot of words, actually. <laughs> topological. Is that what they're saying? Yeah. I think they do some things just to troll people. I mean, he said it like 20 times, so I don't know. It's hard to tell. Yeah. Um, but that was definitely a mainstream video. And I think the science, their explanation of, like their high-level explanation of what, how it happens and uh, the intent behind it, mm -hmm. the results, was more or less accurate. So if you want a quick explanation, you're saying... People can look at Donut Media on YouTube for this Porsche piston. Yeah, I'd like to go into study. a little bit deeper theory there than they did. Okay, let's let's dive deep. Okay, you ready to go now? Yeah, well, let's do it. Just really quickly for anyone that's listening that doesn't, you've probably heard these things. You've probably seen them. Describe what it looks like. Describe, say, like a motorcycle swing arm or something that has been generatively designed or with topology optimization? It looks like veins. It looks like tree branches. You know, it just is very organically shaped with maybe a main trunk structure mm -hmm. with smaller branches coming out of it. Um, that would be a typical topology optimization result for additive manufacturing. Different softwares will result in different, slightly different looks. Just because their algorithms are, are slightly different. Yeah. So uh, I think the tree branch is a pretty good way to describe it. So if, 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 if it was a motorcycle swing arm, if you guys can imagine, very standard extrusions, boxed extrusions. Now we're talking about solid structures that are vein-like yeah. or... Tree, they don't necessarily have tree to be limb solid. like yeah and they don't have to be solid you're right you're right but these follow the strain of force the load paths okay yeah gotcha all right so now that we've hopefully you're getting somewhat a visual it's hard to describe um but we'll i'm sure most listeners are, are aware of it okay yeah so i typically start this discussion on the theory with a discussion about what the conventional design approach is and starting by defining like what is optimum because we have to agree on what optimum is before we can start talking about optimization algorithms. So optimum would be the best result um, obtained under specific conditions. So you have these specific conditions and you have a goal. What would be the best result or the greatest degree of success. That would be optimum. And the conventional approach for finding optimum really isn't designed, it's not set up to find optimum. It's set up to find a feasible result and that's it. So a conventional approach would be you have an initial design, which is more or less a first guess as to what, say, this swing, a motorcycle swing arm might look like. And because motorcycle swing arms are not novel, they exist, your first guess often is just what you've seen out there. 
right? So you would mimic what you've seen prior and you design it and you design it around specific conditions. So on a motorcycle swing arm, you know that it's going to have a hinge on the forward facing end of the swing arm and it's going to have a shaft supporting the wheel on the far end and that wheel is going to have a certain amount of weight that it's supporting so you're trying to understand the forces the static forces the dynamic forces the uh, you know acceleration deceleration that sort of thing and these are your specific conditions so you design it and then ideally you would move into a simulation phase or a verification phase where you mesh your model and you apply all of these load loading conditions and uh, then you run an FEA analysis, static analysis, dynamic analysis, whatever it is. And that analysis will show you results on a mesh. It will say like, you know, here are your stress values, right? Here are your deformations and you, here's your factor of safety in different areas. And so you as the designer is saying, okay, well, that looks like a feasible answer, or maybe it's an unfeasible answer. It doesn't give you any information beyond that. It doesn't really give you a pathway towards, is this the best answer, right? Okay. So you might be able to interpret those results and say, okay, well, stress is low in this area. Perhaps I could carve out some material there. So you could iterate and you could go back to the design phase and make a change and then come back into your study, run the study again. But um, I've compared it to finding a black cat in a, in a black room, right? Maybe you have a flashlight and you enter the room and you know there's a cat in there and you need to find it. You can turn your flashlight on and check to see if the cat's there. You turn it off. You repoint the, you know, the flashlight, you turn it on. Is it there or is it not there? The cat might be moving. Like you are just shooting in the dark, trying to find this cat named Optimum. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's what the conventional process is. And uh, so topology optimization, really just optimiz uh, optimization driven design because topology optimization is one specific type of goal. You have topography optimization. You have free size optimization. You have different, different types of concept level optimizations and different types of like fine tuning optimization algorithms. Topology optimization is what people broadly are aware of, but like topography optimization would be, I have a piece of sheet metal. I want to maximize the stiffness. Where do I put ridges in it? Where do I stamp ridges into it? It's a 2D, uh, it's a 2D problem. It's a topography problem. It's not topology pro problem. So there are different types of optimization algorithms here. So conventional design processes are designed to ask, answer, is this solution feasible? Um, not, is this solution optimal? And that's the fundamental difference about what's conventionally done, like what you and I do have done and we're learned, we were taught to do in school. And now hopefully what's being taught in school as a 
in addition to traditional FEA. Because you still you still need traditional FEA skills and understanding um, to verify your results. So this is very FEA heavy. Yeah. And it helps to have a traditional design beforehand. Well, you, for topology optimization, yeah. not necessarily. So topology optimization, you create a, a specific design. And again, this is how most of them work. You would have, on this swing arm, you would have known locations for the hinge mm -hmm. and the, the pivot. Shaft, the pivot. Yep. The pivot hinge on the front and then the wheel axle, right? Those are yeah. known locations and a known, you have probably limits on the length or a range that you would want on the length and known limits on the width. So you would have this envelope that you can put material in. So that's the, I guess that's what I'm describing as the traditional design. Like you have to specify the work envelope. Yeah. But and, you want and it, it will stay within those constraints. And then you're using your pickup points, your pivot and your yeah, you your axle, your yeah. dropouts. Yeah. So you would know the shape of those, how they're interacting with other components in the assembly. And you would have an idea of where those should be. And those could be designed, you know, fairly accurately. But in between that, you want a design that is as basic as possible. You basically just want an envelope of what what is the potential design space. And that's what we would call that. We would call that the design space. Okay. So that's the area that we're choosing to optimize. And you would have, uh, basically, those would be design variables. Those would be a volume or a width or a height. Also material, because you're going to have to know the material properties. Uh, yeah. So that's your design variable. And then you would have responses. So a response in this would be bending stress, shear stress, that sort of thing. Like mm -hmm. What are we going to be measuring? How are we going to, what metrics are we going to optimize against? Okay. And then you would have constraints. So constraints would be like sizes, but it would also be an allowable stress or a factor of safety, these are going to limit the your potential results. So, uh, you know, you could design it like I have a conventional factor of safety of three, that's a constraint. So only sh present to me potential results that have at least a factor of safety of three. So these would be the boundary conditions of your optimization algorithm. And then you have the optimization algorithm. So once all of that is set up, you have, you set up a goal that you're optimizing for, right? So you, what? <laughs> What's... You're just totally geeking out right now. <laughs> he's like, he's starting to sweat. He's, no, nah, I'm just kidding. He, <laughs> do you need a towel? No, I don't need a towel. <laughs> I don't need a towel. Keep, keep going. All Sorry. Right. So you have a goal. What are you optimizing for? Um, so if you were to optimize for maximum stiffness, what would the result be? It would be the full block of material. It would give you the maximum material condition, right? So you have to have a goal that's designed to remove material. So like a stiffness to weight ratio, for example, or you could minimize the mass 
and you've given it constraints. So like minimize the mass, but still keep it above a factor of safety. You need a goal like that. Yeah. And it's and non, I, goals are non-numeric. Okay. Is the constraints are numeric. Goals are non-numeric. So the goal is just, I want this to be as light and stiff as possible, given these constraints that are numeric. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that's why it's, in the beginning of this, I was like, it's important to dis, to start with a traditional design. And maybe I was thinking more along the lines of like light weighting, yeah. for example, aerospace or motorcycles, whatever it might be, it's beneficial to have the lightest components. Um, but there are allowable safety factors depending on industry. Yeah. In aerospace, it's barely over 1x, you know, versus uh, motorcycle, it might be something different. And then traditional structural, it's probably 4x. Yeah. But um, I, I guess... Imagine you were drawing it in SketchUp. Okay, so your your CAD <laughs> your favorite program. Yeah, your CAD your your CAD tools are very limited, right? You're going to create blocky segments. That would be your initial design. It would look similar, something similar to that, as simple as possible, representing the maximum size you want. And if if weight was not a concern, and you know, let's say you're just building, you're building something that would benefit from being quite heavy and bulky, like. You're not going to optimize that for light weighting. You would just use that maximum material result. Would you say light weighting is the major benefit of topology optimization? Tup topological optimi <laughs> optimizing. Uh, I would say in the way it's used, that's how it's used most often is light weighting. What other benefits are there? You could avoid resonant frequencies, Ah, for example. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, there's probably other things. Okay. <laughs> but the obvious one is light Especially weighting. on the conceptual level. And I think that's where it's sexiest too. Yeah. If you're talking about, once you're past the conceptual level, there are optimizations that you could say, hey, here's a near complete design. Change the gauge thickness of the materials that I'm using. Or change the beam sizes of my weldment, right? Or if I have light weighting holes... Try to find, just like fine tune the shape. And if you see stress risers, just create fillets of the certain size. So um, there's there's things like that as well. But that's not the conceptual level of topology optimization. And that's not what most people are thinking about when they think topology optimization. So where it's beneficial, I mean, at least just the, the easiest way is to lightweight yeah. something. And obviously there are other applications, yeah. but that one's the most... Where I've seen it in popular mechanics yeah. and these other media sources covering it, it's almost always a yeah. lightweighting scenario. Same with like the Porsche pistons. Right. It's an efficiency thing because now these pistons are X amount lighter yeah. than they used to be. And so they're able to uh, capture more of the generated horsepower, right? Right. Or in the case of the pistons, they're able, they were saying that, they were able to increase the red line by 300 RPM. So they're extending that power band. And many times if you're lightweighting something, it's not necessarily you need something lightweight, but maybe you want to size down a motor that's like a servo motor yeah, or electric the motor. the driver. Yeah, you're wanting to size that down or bring it into a different realm. Or, but maybe it is just lightweighting. Like if you, if you make a plane lighter, 
your fuel burn is or less. you can carry more fuel or you or can carry more have fuel, more or load you can capacity one american or <laughs> six new zealanders <laughs> why, why do you have to do that what why do you have to? Why do you have to always dish on our on our uh, listeners outside of the U.S.? I'm not dishing on them. New Zealanders are, are our size. It's I'm dishing on Americans. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we're we're huge. Yeah. Just I'm so not. everybody knows, I weigh 600 pounds. <laughs> they have to roll me into this yeah. to this studio. So yeah, you know, no fat jokes. Yeah, we're gonna have to come up with a topology optimized. Uh, Version of me, mini, mini, <laughs> mini truck to get you in here. <laughs> so, so light weighting it is. I don't know why I keep bringing that up. It's just it's the funnest thing about topology optimization. Yeah. You built that RC car chassis. Mm-hmm. It's just a Traxxas slash, and I actually have like the traditional. Do you really? Yeah, I have. I have the two wheel drive Traxxas slash. Oh wow! Yeah, I have one. I'm a total geek, dude. I have. I have two RC, three RC like, trucks. I don't even like RC cars. I love. them. I did that whole project. I don't even like them. I love them. I think they're kind of boring. I own three. I have a. I have a nitro one. Yeah. I have two electric ones. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm a uh, the UDR, the ultimate yeah. desert racer. It's like the fun. It, it looks so cool. I it's, think my problem is I just don't find joy in life. Uh, <laughs> you're not a very fun person. <laughs> Outside of this, he is just yeah. No, but the, the RC cars. If you can't smile, I, I've never seen someone drive one, and it doesn't matter how old you are. And yeah. yeah, I'm 32. It's a little bit creepy if you were to see me at the park cruising my <laughs> UDR. You've got to bring somebody with you. Yeah. You know, it's mm-hmm. something you shouldn't do alone. Um, but it, it, it's impossible not to smile yeah. when you're driving that thing. And anyway, I have a traditional slash, and you have one highly modified using topology optimization. Right. And you're able to use a, an aluminum chassis yeah that has been totally see this is another thing we could post a picture of we have a i have a whole webinar on this on youtube oh you do yeah what should people search if they want to look it up um i will have to put search, a link in our put a link yeah i'm not okay. sh- i'm not sure exactly go to the go engineer youtube channel if, if you're impatient or you don't want to go to our description and just search what um, topology optimization do you think oh, it would pull up with that if you look up 3dp summer road sh- no that's the diy drone project rc 3d scan cad and print it's a 90 minute presentation oof <laughs> it's heavy it's just a recording of an in-person live event but you'll talk more about topology optimization in detail yeah. and this is from 2016 so uh it's a lot it's of a, a lot's changed some has changed for sure but the concepts are the same and yeah. the project is really cool the project is cool i don't have any discussion of the actual metal printed chassis that we did that came later so oh. originally we did it out of i don't know asa i think we did it out of nylon 12 cf maybe not we have we have all sorts of chassis around now I don't remember the original one, but we did at the time we were partnered with uh, Concept Laser before they were bought by GE, and I had them print it out of um, aluminum. It's pretty cool. The aluminum silicon magnesium alloy. Well, it looks cool. It functions. Yeah. As far as I know, I've never seen that thing drive around. Oh, yeah, it functions. Sweet. Yeah. 
I don't drive it. <laughs> but, you know, we could throw a battery on there and you can drive it. And I don't know if it's actually lighter. In this case, it's not lighter because I never designed it for metal additive. So Was it lighter when it was made out of uh, the nylon 12 CF or no, mystery material? It really wasn't because it, it wasn't a fair comparison. You're comparing an injection molded glass filled nylon chassis to actually, I think it was ASA, a 3D printed ASA. So what you're saying is it's not better? It, in this case, <laughs> it's not better. And I probably talk it, about that. Is it stiffer? It is. Stronger? Yeah. I don't know if it's stronger. Well, it, it, it definitely looks beefy. It looks beefy. But now, okay, so once we moved over to aluminum, if we had printed a hollow shell, which they didn't, they printed it solid. But if you printed it hollow, I did, I did the math, and it would have come out lighter and significantly stronger. But again, now you're comparing aluminum against an injection molded glass filled nylon. Yeah, but it, it, it affords you that possibility, right? Like because of the generative design, sure. if, if you were to just build that tray, for example, out of aluminum, it's going to be heavier, yeah. most likely than the glass filled plastic that it, yeah. that it comes with. It was, a proof in, it was a proof of concept type project. You know, it was really to showcase the workflow and the software and the printing, you know, we, we did some cool things. I optimized the, um, the control arms and the spoiler, like the attachment to the spoiler. And I did all sorts of different types of, which they don't come standard with. No, it doesn't have, normally they don't have big spoiler. Mega downforce. <laughs> you know, that's something that I would like to see more work on is topology optimization in flow simulation. That'd be really powerful. And also the topology optimization that we're talking about is typically subtractive. So you have to start with a design envelope and it whittles it away. Right. Um, other types of topology optimization may generate materials. Um, desktop metals live. What do they call that? Uh, it's live something. It generates material out in, into space. So, um, my understanding is that their solver is capable of doing flow. Live parts. Live parts, that's right. Their solver is capable of doing flow optimizations, but um, they're, not, they're not at that level. So imagine like uh, some front spoilers on an F1 car, and you would say, hey, I want to maximize downforce while keeping weight below this number, and you're occupying this space. It could potentially come up with fin designs. That's crazy. Very crazy. Or thermal optimization. So let's say here's a heat source. It's a CPU. And here's your design space. Grow, essentially grow a heat sink that would optimize for surface uh, area. That's insane. Yeah. I'm, and, look, I'm uh, looking right now at this live parts and I see a familiar part in here on the web page. Which part is that? I think it's the window roller. <laughs> He's coming over to look at it. Oh, that that's actually a, that's a similar part. But not the same? Not the same. So that window roller, <laughs> what is that called? The cr window crank? Yeah. We don't, we don't, kids that are what, younger than 30? Yeah. Or I don't know. Not much younger than us. My Mazda had, didn't have power windows. 
Anyone born 2000 and after does not know what a window crank is. I remember I had a Honda Civic. This was just a few years ago that I used as my beater commuter car. Yeah. My girlfriend's little brother got inside. He's like, how do you roll down the windows? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you got a crank. You got to work in this car. Wow. Uh, That design that we have floating around came out of a competition I held with our customers. And we, we got them access to solid think at the time it was solid thinking inspire online so they didn't have to in download or install anything they would log in online and use it on the cloud and they were able to design whatever they wanted and he designed a uh, a window crank and we printed it on the desktop metal studio system and we sent we sent him one he was the winner that's awesome yeah lucky guy was a lucky guy there weren't there was not very many entries it was hard to get people to sounds familiar i know competitions are tough (laughs) so we're we're, again we're coming up against the clock here a little bit but we've given enough information to confuse the heck out of a lot of people but we've also given you some resources some some keywords to search online if you're interested let me talk a little bit more Oh, okay. I do want to talk right. a little bit more. He's got a couple minutes and he's going to fill it. There's right. more There's Go more to the it. process. So you end up with a, a result. And in most cases, you don't have one result presented to you. So different softwares will handle this differently. For example, Autodesk will give you a bunch of different discrete results that you kind of look at and choose from. Uh, something like Inspire, which we were just talking about, gives you a slider so you can slide and it's going it's to... It's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. And it will go from basically zero material to max material and you'll slide it until you start to see these load paths, which is what it's revealing, load paths converging. And then now you have a shape. Um, you have to verify that the shape is feasible. All right, so... There is a subsequent traditional FEA step. But what you've done is you've eliminated that first guess and you've asked the, com- the computer, the algorithms, present to me an option. Mm-hmm. And it sets you on the right path towards optimum as long as you have given it a complete understanding of the, the loading conditions, right? which is easier said than done. Your result is only as good as the simulation information that you Exactly. Provided. And anybody who's done any FEA simulation knows your result, same thing. Your result is only as accurate yeah. as the loads that you apply to it. With one caveat, one caveat. And? Um... The magnitude, the magnitude of the loads don't necessarily matter in all scenarios. So like for the swing arm, if you know, if you, if you don't know the magnitude of the forces, mm-hmm. but you know the direction and the location of the forces and you are optimizing for like a maximum stiffness to weight ratio, the magnitudes of the forces don't gotcha. matter. Gotcha. That's pretty cool. Because the end result is going to be the same. The only time the magnitudes come into play is when you go to verify that result. And now you're in a traditional FEA and it's going to display to you stress and strain and things like that. Those are 100% dependent on the magnitudes of the loads. Which is why it's shape. important to have your design space allocated correctly as well. Because 
your end result in, ter- in terms of magnitude, what forces can be applied will vary if you're if you're going with that workflow depending on how large the design space is because it'll use all of that if it can if it helps achieve that maximum stiffness to weight well it won't in some cases the result might be it needs all of it right <laughs> he's he's glitching out <laughs> in if you don't give it enough design space to actually convert the for the simulation to converge then you don't you won't have a feasible result and the result that it presents to you will basically be your design space back at you because it's saying you need all the material yeah is that what I'm you're just, saying i'm talking about like if i give it a very minimal like if i bring in a traditional swing arm uh-huh and i'm using that exact same space oh yeah as my design it space won't work. it could work but it's going to be so yeah, it's not going to work as uh, you need to give it some more yeah. space. It won't or it, as much as you can afford to give. Exactly. It won't work in how you're probably expecting it to work cuz it's only going to remove additional material. So, it may you may have room for further optimization there. And that's really what it would be telling you is like, "Hey, you you have room for further optimization. You can take more material out." But it won't reveal new it won't add material where there's no material. So yeah, you want to dumb down your model as much as possible. And basically you're just designing the full working envelope. Where are you going to allow material to be? And then it gives you a result and it's up to you to figure out how you're going to uh, bring that result into fruition. So you may end up machining a part. You may end up printing a part. You may end up welding a part. And that's where additional design constraints can help. Different software packages may allow you to say, hey, only give me prismatic results or only give me symmetric results. Don't give me organic additive results because I'm not going to be 3D printing this. And in all reality, most people using the software right now are not really 3D printing their results. Well, and I think that's really the point of this whole episode is to say that how this relates to 3D printing is that the easiest way to produce one of these designs is typically through additive manufacturing. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I would say some additive manufacturing technologies are better aligned with this. Something like FDM, you can sparse out the inside of FDM. So the amount of effort going into topology optimization may not be worth it. Okay. Because you can take a traditional boxy type design and just sparse it out yeah internally exactly but something like sla could benefit yeah sla um you could create a lattice structure inside sla but it has to be able to drain the liquid you got to plan that out yeah you plan that out and then but um that effort to do that or actually the software to do that may be prohibitively expensive so yeah perhaps but also you you're going to be using these as an end product so make sure the technology that you're using is congruent with that which is why this type of workflow and this technology the software technology really hasn't taken off and it's kind of been aligned with the growth of metal additive now is it used very often outside of demo parts and stuff like that honestly not not really not in my experience I think a lot of it has to do with certification. 
on additive technologies. Yeah. And I think as we hear more every day about like yesterday, for example, about certifications that are in progress or that are, exist yeah. or are becoming more widely accepted. And as that continues to happen, I think you're going to see the popularity of topology optimization rise and it will become less of like, oh, look what we can do and right. more of like, hey, man, this is a legitimate way to create your parts. I agree with that 100%, which is why I think it's important to start learning the theory and how to use it right now because you're going to be using it more and more and the parts you design in 2030 will probably be heavily influenced by topology optimization. You heard it here first. That's, <laughs> and, yeah, 2030. It's important to know, like, you we can use nine it. years? Yeah. You can use it for machine parts. There's nothing stopping you. Except for wasted time and material. Well, some, some like, SolidWorks has it built in into one of their simulation packages. Fusion 360 has a, a version of it where you can get some results quite quick. And at least at it will help you with that first guess. Even if you don't actually use those results, it will reveal to you, if you're going to put material anywhere, prioritize it here. You can add more, but you need material right here. Okay. So it's almost like taking the FEA results with like the color mapping, mm -hmm. but giving you a more visual version of where you ought to be putting your material or where, where to allocate yeah. material if you're going to put it somewhere. Yeah. For sure. Um, but don't don't think that it can replace an education FEA. in traditional FEA because the FEA tool sets within these topology optimization programs generally are not as complete and really no, they're not intended to be as complete. It's intended as a conceptual tool. So, you know, you're not going to have the same control over you know, you have a bolt pattern and it's a distributed stress across all of them. And you have uh, an understanding of the pre-stress the, the pre on these bolts. Like you won't be going to that level of simulation setup for topology optimization in most cases. If you're doing something high-end like with OptiStruct from Altair or maybe Tosca from Dassault, then maybe because you're now you're working in an environment that has already a very complete tool set, but uh, these more entry level, they're, they're designed for conceptual designs, intended for conceptual designs. Yeah. The future is now, <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. It's fun. That's <laughs> hopefully that, that wasn't was overwhelming. A, that was a heavy episode. Was it? If you guys made it this far, congratulations. Yeah. Send us your email. We'll send you a prize. Yeah. For sure. No, that was that was good. I think um, we do a good job of confusing people, I think, and at least uh, getting people to look into these. Uh, you, you've heard about them, but just educating yourselves a little more on them. Yeah. If you can adopt and utilize these, like Tyler said, 2030, we're going to be implementing more of these designs in traditional assemblies, and uh, you can hold him accountable for that. All right. So nine Sounds years good. from now. Sounds good. All right. We'll call it rate, subscribe. <laughs> thanks for listening. Send us your thoughts. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Take care.